Welcome to Paradis, a broadcast dedicated to helping Christians develop a biblical worldview, preparing us to think scripturally and soundly about our world today. I'm your host, Brian Nixon. Joining me on today's broadcast is Dr. Joseph Holden, author, pastor, and president of Veritas International University, and Luke Betzner, pastor, author, and director of institutional effectiveness at Veritas International University. Welcome, gentlemen. Good to be with you both. Thank you so much, Brian. It's great to be back on. Well, throughout this semester, our focus is on apologetics, using Dr. Holden's book, Living Loud, as our springboard. During the semester broadcast, we'll touch on several important topics, such as truth, God's existence, miracles, Jesus's divinity, and biblical reliability, among many other fascinating themes. On our last episode, we answered the question, what is truth, addressing various angles and outlooks on the topic. If you missed the episode, I encourage you to check it out. This week, we're jumping into our second core question, does God exist? And Joe and Luke, as you know, philosophers, theologians, scientists, and your common man have grappled with the age-old question of God's existence. And of course, for the Christian, this is an essential inquiry. Fundamentally, we're asking, does the universe, all of existence, both metaphysical and physical, have an origin? What philosophers call a necessary being, and of course, what we theists call God. So that's our, our quest today, to ask, does God exist? So Joe, let's start with you. <laughs> How do we know God exists? Wow, that's a that's a big question, and there have been many answers, as you said, provided over the years, Brian. But the Bible is very clear that it attempts to elicit faith from its readers, faith in God, faith in his son, Jesus Christ. But Hebrews 11.6 says, all who come to God must first believe that he is. And so you have to believe that there is a God that you can place your faith in. Because if there is no God, you can't have a word of God. If there is no God, you can't have a son of God. If there is no God, you can't have acts of God or the word of God or any such manner. And so God has created this world in such a way that he can be found. He can be seen. And in Romans chapter 1, it says his nature, his attributes are clearly seen by the entire world. In fact, in Psalm 19 verse 1 it tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. So to answer that question, we look to what we have to work with, and that is nature. It is creation. And there are three traditional or fundamental arguments that many have used over time. There's the first cause argument that reasons from the origin of the universe back to an originator or a first cause. They also call that a cosmological argument. Then you have a design argument that looks at information systems built into the biological world, to the scientific community, to look through their telescopes and microscopes to see that there's information and, and specified complexity like language and if that's the case, there must be an intelligent designer. And then you have the moral argument that seeks to show from the existence of moral law in the heart, according to 
Romans chapter 2, verse 15 and following, that you have this one lawgiver that gives to all men these particular moral laws or these moral commands, these oughts or these things that we should do. And so when we come to the question, Brian, it is involved, it's deep and complex, but it doesn't have to be so because the Lord through his word has pointed us in the direction to see who he is and that he is indeed there. Mm, that was a great summary. Thanks for that, Joe. So you gave us three arguments or proofs. Uh, let's let's spend some time unpacking these. The first cause, the design, and moral arguments. So Luke, let's start with the first. What, what exactly? You know, Joe gave us a, a quick summary, but what is the first cause proof, and why is it so essential for the arguments for God's existence? So again, this is a deep question, but it has very simplistic progression. It's once you hear the argument, it's sort of like that interplay between Watson and Holmes, you know, where Watson says, I never saw this before. And Holmes says, well, it's elementary, my dear Watson. And, and this is the arguments laid out really clearly. And that is, if something is finite in that it has a beginning, and of course, probably an end as well, but focuses on the beginning. If it has a beginning, then it must have a cause. And since finite things exist, therefore a cause for those finite things must also or does also exist. And so unless one begins to take sort of the Descartes approach and try to debate you know, the reality of how the senses can perceive reality, which is a way in which this has tried to, this sort of been tried to be torpedoed here to argue that, well, there's no such thing as reality, it's only perception. They're trying to kick out that middle argument that finite things do actually exist. What we would call naive reality, that which all people collectively perceive, there's commonality and objectivity to that that cannot be whittled away through postmodernism and deconstructionism. But that's nonetheless what people are trying to do. So something that has a beginning and uh, is finite definitely has a cause. Now, conversely, a lot of people will try to say, well, uh, that means if everything has a cause, then therefore God has a cause. But this is where you have a specialized application in that God is not fitting within the box of that which is finite, nor does he have a beginning. And it's not just a clever way that we're seeking to skirt the argument that we're using to prove his existence. It's actually true. He is immaterial. He is above time. He is outside of these properties that we live in. And therefore, it is very easy to attribute to him this cause. But that aside, even though that's the reason why a lot of people push back on it, because they're they're fighting against the very possibility of an implication that that cause could potentially be the God of the Bible. Therefore, they sort of rebel and run in the other direction. Nonetheless, the argument stands. God is in a class by himself outside of time, out, you know, outside of space, all of these things. He's not a spatial being. And all the things that we experience have a beginning, are inside time, and are inside space. So through science and math and physics to sort of hit them against the premises of this, they create these worlds, these universes, dimensions, where all their philosophical dreams can come true. 
and by which they seek to build a preponderance of evidence, which is really nothing than a flurry of theoretical proliferation to make what is real, quote unquote, seem less and less likely as the product of intentionality by a being outside of space and time. However, even in all of this, there's nothing of proof regarding these inventions. It's just a desperate attempt at what we talked about last week, the coherence model of truth. They're seeking to build a coherence that is based on their own desperation, as I would call it. And uh, an interesting historical note about this is that the solid state universe theory, in other words, that the universe always existed and will continue to exist, was posited and became rather popular in the days leading up to and including the 19th century. But in recent times, they've sort of in name only perhaps moved away from that, but it's starting to show up again as a rebellion against uh, the, the cosmological first cause argument. Thanks for that, Luke. So Joe, I used a term, a necessary being, um, you know, and that's a, a philosophical term. Philosoph philosophers use that. Talk to us about what exactly is the necessary being and how does it connect to this first cause argument? You know, the necessary mean being really refers to the idea that this being must be, it cannot not be. And we say that because really there are only three ways in which the universe could come to be. In fact, there is only three ways in which anything can come to be. There is one option which says the universe was uncaused. And that option uh, says that the universe simply is, it's been here from eternity, there was no first cause at all to it. But unfortunately, this view violates the law of causality that says every effect must have a cause, every action must have an actor, everything that has a beginning must have a beginner. So it violates the law of causality that science and philosophy has been using from the dawn of creation. The second option would be that the universe was self-caused. And that couldn't be the case either because nobody can cause themselves to be. Uh, it's like us saying that we didn't have any parents, uh, that there was no um, cause of us to exist at this point. It's like saying I can lift myself up off the ground by my own bootstraps. So a self-caused uh, option basically says you have to exist and not exist at the same time. You have to exist in order to bring yourself into existence. And that is absurd. So the only third way, which is the correct way to think about um, how this universe came to be and thus having a cause that we call God is that the universe was caused by someone or something else. This is the only reasonable explanation because it preserves the law of causality that says every effect needs a cause. This universe is an effect, therefore it needs a cause. And it puts it squarely in the lap of this first cause that we call a necessary being. Now, the fact that it's necessary means that we couldn't arrive at today under these conditions without there being that first cause. In other words, that this first cause must be there to push the first domino or else the last domino in the series never gets to fall down. 
And we're in that last series. We are that last domino as we sit here in this moment of time today that tells us there must have been a necessary being to serve as a first cause. Mm, that was great. Thanks for that, Joe. I'm going to stick with you for a moment, Joe, because you mentioned first cause. Well, the second proof or argument for God's existence is is related to this first cause, but it has a little bit of nuance. So, so Joe, expand more upon the design argument for God's existence. Be, just like, you know, a cause needed a, a necessary being, design, you know, connotes a designer. So, so unpack a little bit more what the design argument for God's existence is. Sure thing. You know, William Paley, back in the 18th century, he popularized this notion that God, the intelligent designer, was responsible for the information systems that we see in the universe today. In fact, the Discovery Institute with Stephen Meyer and, and uh, William Dembski and Casey Luskin and, and some of these other thinkers have done a great job in looking at the information or the specified complexity, the DNA in creation, and they posit that this language or this, um, this information system we find in the human cell, for example, had to be put there by a mind. It doesn't make sense to say that Webster's Dictionary you know, arose from an explosion in a print shop, and neither does it make sense to say that this intelligent um, information that we're seeing here came about by some natural and random cause. So the design argument says that every design has a designer that the universe manifests this design. You can look at DNA and, and various cellular structures to see the information, information there. Therefore, the universe had a designer. And it's important to remember that even the most simple forms of life, single cell animals even, have some 1,000 volumes of information. Someone once said that you could uh, compare it to 1,000 volumes of an Encyclopedia Britannica, and that is about the same amount of a single cell information that is in uh, these little animals. So it is just an amazing thing to, to suggest that information can come about by anything other than an intelligent first cause uh, takes a lot of faith. That's too much faith to ask of anybody uh, to put into. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember when I was, you know, being taught the theory of evolution, particularly classical Darwinian evolution, um, back in the '70s, and I, I always remember some of the the teachers saying, "Well, you know, these simple cells they they were easy to replicate and and such." But as we've gone more deeply into the understanding of how complex even a quote unquote simple cell is, that information didn't just happen. It just did, did, it didn't come by chance and over a period of time. There is definite design. And and I appreciate, Joe, that you pointed out the, the gentleman from the Discovery Institute, uh, Steve Myers and Dembski and others, because these guys are working legitimate scientists who are digging deep into these questions. So um, some fabulous thoughts and some works that have been written. A um, lot of, lot of 
uh, ink has been spilled on on this this topic. So that was a great answer. Thank you for that. Well, let's go to the third um, argument, the moral argument. Again, we did the first cause. Joe just uh, summarized the design. Now let's go to this third moral argument. And I'll turn it over to you, Luke. Um, talk to our listeners about what the moral argument is. Absolutely. So it's laid out very deductively, just as the cosmological argument, as well as the design argument. And that is every moral law had a moral lawgiver. There is a moral law. Therefore, it had a moral lawgiver. So it's about this empirical idea that we're dealing with things that exist in right now, what we would call naive reality, things which all people perceive and we're extrapolating or using inductive to go back to this. And so as we look at this, it's the idea that there's a ubiquitous concept of right and wrong. Some people call it maybe the law of conscience. However you need to say it, it exists and has existed historically in every single society and therefore in every single individual. And the idea here, some folks will try to sidetrack this by saying, well, there's disagreement between what constitutes what is right and wrong. And they try to use people's disagreement about the morality of particular actions to undermine the idea that there's such a thing as a ubiquitous concept of right and wrong. But while they may be able to prove that certain societies accepted certain behavioral norms and others didn't, they still can't get around the idea that there's only two categories and they are mutually exclusive and they are usually determined and named something along the lines of right and wrong within a society. Like this is how men and women and children think. And they can't get away from that bifurcation, no matter what they try to argue. So it's not whittled away by discussions such as proclivities of particular people, attitudes, practices, or cultural norms. A moral law must have a lawgiver. And I think we talked about this last week, maybe it was two weeks ago, on the Nuremberg trials. This is one of the best examples where a, an entire society decided what was a cultural norm for them, that they were going to implement all of the purges that were necessary to give them the type of society that they wanted, and in doing so, made it very clear of what the consequences of violating what we would call a universal law in the treatment of other human beings. And the world generally recognized that. So simply because there's exceptions to the rule doesn't take away the fact that they were violating an ultimate wrong or an ultimate right on a societal level. There was a higher law. So most of these arguments come from a postmodernistic, deconstructionistic, and they try to focus on this. Uh, now, in, in wrapping this up, Aquinas was clear that laws arise from reason. And that that reason, and you know, talking about the reasoned mind, has its centroid, at its centroid, the preservation of what constitutes virtue. And, and therefore, he posits that men can be collectively aware of what constitutes virtue in a society. And I think we see this play out because almost every society has laws against adultery, against rape, against murder, things that almost everybody at all time has agreed upon. So while the laws were not intrinsically punitive— the social contracts that they created inside the societies became so inevitably. 
And this is the other argument, and that's why I bring it up, is people will say, well, because laws are enforced poorly or because human beings cannot perfectly enforce laws, the laws themselves are bad. But the way a law is enforced or the type of effect it creates within a society because of how it's legislated or how it's applied does not countenance the idea that laws themselves are just a man-made thing. They arise inevitably from within man, and they establish the protection of person and property that has the broadest appeal to the largest portion of the population, and they inevitably emerge, quote, out of nowhere, demonstrating that there is indeed a ubiquitous code of law written on the human heart. And it begs the question, where did that come from? There must be a lawgiver that's superior to mankind who has, of course, in our understanding, made man in his image, and therefore man obviously embodies many of the things that are part of God's normal justice system. Yeah. And it's so good. So good, Luke. Uh, it, it reminds me of Dr. John Warwick Montgomery's, you know, law above the law. You know, there must be a law that's above human law. And and on that note, Luke, I believe Oxford University, maybe it's two years ago, three years ago, I don't exactly remember when, but they did a worldwide study of every culture every major culture that they were able to um, to get in contact with. And they, they did learn, in fact, that every culture does have a set of laws, a set of moral laws that they abide by. So there's something internal that is there. And as, as Joe uh, gave us in the early broadcast, you, you know, the Bible clearly articulates this in Romans 1, um, that, that people are aware of that moral law. So, so it, it is a recap for our listeners. The first cause argument is essentially there's being, therefore there must be a necessary being, God. The the second design argument is that there's design, therefore there must be a designer. The third argument is that there's morals, therefore there must be a moral law giver. So those are the three arguments that are used um, distinctly to discuss God's existence. But I'm going to just switch gears here a little bit. And and Joe, I'll go back to you. Why are these arguments important? Why why don't, as Christians, we just pick up the Bible and quote scripture to people left and right? Why do we have to use what we would call these classical arguments for God's existence? Um, Why even bother with them? Well, it's a good question because we Christians want to appeal to Scripture first and foremost, and we know a lot about God in Scripture, and there's nothing that can replace Scripture in what is communicated to us, mankind, from God. So we don't want to deprecate Scripture to the point where we just don't want to use it. We always want to give the gospel first. We always want to tell people about what the Scripture says. But what happens is many people don't believe scripture. They don't have a relationship with God. And so they don't see the scripture as authoritative as you would see it as a believer. So what we do is instead of tucking our Bible underneath our arm and going home frustrated, that God has given us common sense. He has given us the world. He's given us his creation to look at and build an argument back to him from what everybody has in common, what everybody can see, what everybody has access to. And basically, the Christian would appeal to the language of nature. You know, it's much like what 
Paul did in the book of Acts chapter 14. He used nature to communicate that there was a God who caused it to rain and to grow their crops and so forth. And in Acts 17, you had Paul use poetry and, and the statements from Epimenides and Aratus to tell the people that God predetermined the boundaries and, and that he made life from one person. He was drawing upon the laws of nature or creation to point back to the God that they unfortunately were ignorant about. So Paul was very clever to use what was around him. When he went to the synagogues to talk to the religious people, he used scripture. He opened the Old Testament scriptures and, and communicated to them that Jesus was the Messiah. But when he went to pagans or those people who didn't have the scriptures, the Gentiles, so to speak, he often used nature to be able to communicate what God was like. And all we have to do is just look around. In fact, God has given us these wonderful um, things that we just spoke of, the cosmological argument, the design argument, the moral argument, to communicate in a very logical and common sense way the same truths that are mentioned in Scripture. Great. Thanks for that, Joe. So, Luke, you know, these are pivotal arguments we're talking about. They've been used for you know, 2,000 plus years, um, you know, 2,000 years within the church. And then, of course, others in, in Greek and Roman times use variations on these. So they're, they're, they're classical. They're, they're very good arguments. But are there any other rational arguments that we could use for God's existence? Are there, are there other things or are these primarily the three and everything else is just themes and variations on these three? It's a good question. I'd say it'd be one might be hard pressed to find one that is not in some way, shape, or form tangent to these three areas. The ontological argument might be one, and you know, there's a lot of folks that really love it or really hate it. It's hard hard to determine where someone might fall unless they've gone through it. But you know, there's arguments from irreducible complexity, which may be related to the design argument. Most of them would be able to be related to the three categories that we've argued from already, but there is almost an infinite number of examples for the very thing that Joe pointed out and that you talked about last week, which is the book of nature. There are infinite numbers of arguments that could be made um, for the objectivity of the existence of God. Mm. Uh, Joe, can you think of any other you know, modern arguments, you, you know, in, in, in my book, one of my books, I, I argue from beauty, the perspective of beauty. I know other philosophers have argued from numerical uh, systems such as eternity. Um, others have used uh, themes and variations. Are there any other modern um, takes that really stand out to you? Well, you know, I love what C.S. Lewis had mentioned in terms of arguing for the existence of God. He said, basically, you can't make statements that say the world is getting worse or the world is getting better unless you have an overarching standard of morality above the world. In other words, you can't say that something is crooked unless you have an absolute understanding of what is straight. And this somewhat led him to come closer to making a profession of faith 
within Christianity. Every time he said the world was getting evil or evil exists, he couldn't say that because he would have to have an ultimate standard beyond himself and beyond the world that he can judge the world by. And so he finally understood that that straight line, that ultimate judge or ruler, if you will, the standard was actually God himself. And then you have Aristotle and Aquinas talking about the theories of motion. You know, you can't have motion unless there's a mover. And uh, that mover must move things. And Aristotle called it the unmoved mover because you can't go back infinitely looking for these movers continually or you never arrive at today. You have to get to a point where there is an unmoved mover, that there is an independent first cause to get the series started or else we can never find how the series started to begin with. Luke brought that up and called it the infinite regress. And infinite regresses are impossible. You can't have an actual infinite regress. You can have it mathematically. In fact, you can look at pi, you know, 3.1, and then you just keep going off and, and going on mathematically and theoretically. But an actual um, infinite regress is impossible. So God affords all of us that first cause that we all need to account for why we arrived at today not only that we came to be, but also that we continue to be as the conserving cause of this world. And you can see Hebrews 1 and Colossians 2 to talk about the conserving causality that God has. And without him, none of this would be here today. He was the first finger, the first cause that pushed the first domino. And unless that occurred, you just can't have it. So yes, there's more than one way to show the existence of God. And and you could continue on in these other similar type arguments that could reason back to a creator. Mm. So, Luke, how, how would you handle the various modern theories that science is throwing out, supposedly dismissing the need for God? I, you mentioned one at the beginning. I think of M theory or cosmic inflation, this idea of an internal self-creating universe. What would you say to these and how would you respond to them? This is a great question because this really gets into the cultural hot topics. And just so just to give a brief breakdown on that, some of our listeners may be aware, some of our listeners are definitely aware of the idea of string theory. And that's the idea of this M theory. So this is something that originated uh, late 90s. There was a paper that was written that sought to unify the existing five string theories that were attempts to create what's called a theory of unified forces. Now, Michael Faraday talked about this when he was working in electromagnetism. He postulated that there potentially could be a theory that would successfully reconcile the four major forces, some postulate by, but four major forces, which is gravity, electromagnetism, and the weak nuclear force, the strong nuclear force, some people have called it the the strong interactive force or the weak interactive force, same thing, different term. But this is what's been being attempted. And here's why it's significant. And here's why I would approach it the way that I do. And that is, inevitably, after the departure of the general scientific community towards Einstein and away from Newton, 
And there's something to be said for that. As we went further and further into the subatomic realm, we started noticing that the laws of motion that were created, or I shouldn't say created, discovered by Newton were not sufficient to describe what was happening on the subatomic level. Therefore, you come up with Einstein's theory of relativity and his special theory of relativity. But the weird thing about that is, theologically and spiritually, during the Newtonian phase, everybody was very deterministic because you knew what you knew, and that's you know cause and effect. It was very rigid, and it worked. And so what a lot of the scientific community has found in the subatomic research is this rather seemingly chaotic world where there's a lot of unknowns and there's not really a way to find out where anything is at any certain point or change it when you observe it. And they begin to extrapolate in the same manner that they did from the Newtonian side to a philosophical and even a religious viewpoint or anti-religious viewpoint from what they were observing on this level. And M-theory is one of these things. It is it is predicated on the idea that there are multiple dimensions in which pieces or sub-pieces of particles exist vibrating synchronously to manifest in our current visible realm. And there could be up to 11 different dimensions in which this happens. The multiverse is another thing. And, and Brian, this has been used to really go against the fine-tuning argument. They are seeking to create additional things that try to skew the probability of intentionality, as I mentioned when we first talked about the first cause. And it's happening through this. So even though it's very interesting mathematically, it's very interesting on the physics side of things, there's ultimately only a theory and it's not even fully fleshed out. So M theory is part of that, sought to reconcile it, to unify it under the idea to bring all these different forces together with a common explanation or a unified explanation. But the underpinnings of that are anti-God. They're against, they're, they're seeking to find that coherence that would allow them to permanently reject the idea of fine-tuning, which is, according to Hawking and others, probably the most powerful argument that exists against the worldview that promotes that there's no need for God, no need for a creator, or the universe, as you mentioned, creates itself. So this ceaseless philosophical extrapolation from these theoretical models constantly tries to superimpose itself as the de facto or demonstrable or moral or rather amoral framework by which ironically they say we should live our lives while at the same time telling us that there is no such thing as ought or should right and and so i just want to put this in very basic terms newtonian physics describes largely the visible world in which we work live move and the M theory and string theory and the super string theories, they're all about the subatomic realm. Now they can in many ways properly describe what is happening at the subatomic level in Einsteinian or relative or quantum mechanics, quantum physics, whereas Newtonian physics largely deals with what we can see and interact with. And it should sort of stop there. Like, okay, we have a system that tells us and properly predicts the behavior of these types of, of frames of reference. It's the extrapolation to the religious side that I would reject. And that's how I would approach these theories, the new ones that are coming out, 
be aware of what potentially is driving them philosophically and reject the extrapolation and say, hey, it's great. You found a new way to describe this kind of movement. That doesn't necessarily follow that we should begin to extract moral implications from it. Yeah. And and I think it also comes down to the fact that they're missing the point on ontology, that all the things that they're describing have a sense in being. Being isn't just physical being, something that we can touch, taste, see, and smell. It is also metaphysical being. It's the laws of nature, mathematics, and so on and so forth. So to use quantum physics and string theory and other things, you're still using something. And you, you're missing the point of you need a necessary being to account for any type of being, be it physical being or ontological or, or um, metaphysical being. So re- really good, really good point there. Um, we're, we're coming down to our, our, our time here, gentlemen. So as normal, um, let's let's just end uh, with the books we would recommend our listeners to read. And Joe, I know you mentioned the Discovery Institute. Um, Are there any books you would say, hey, make sure you read this to get a better handle on not only these classical arguments for God's existence, but maybe touch on some of the things that we've we've discussed today? Yes, um, actually two books I have in mind. Uh, One is written by Michael Behe. He's a biochemist at Lehigh University, and he wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box. So those who want to go a little deeper into the design argument can read his book, and in it, he demonstrates how a a, just a smallest animal form, like a bacterial flagellum, um, can show signs of designs. It shows how it has an outboard motor type of system. It has couplings. It has to be assembled in the right order and has to be fully formed to over in order to operate, thrive, and ultimately exist. It's just amazing. He calls it Darwin's black box because uh, Darwin couldn't see down at the molecular uh, level like we can see today. So it's a beautiful book. The second one is written by Stephen Meyer. It's called Signature in the Cell. That also Uh, argues for design in the universe, especially within biological systems and all the great components that point back to an intelligent designer. Those two books would be a real power-packed read for anybody. Mm. Luke, I'll turn it over to you. What, uh, What books would you recommend our listeners to read? Now, this one's a little bit of a heavier read, but it's, it's really, it's been profitable. It's called Replacing Darwin. And it's, it's, written by a Harvard-trained microbiologist. His name is Nathaniel Jensen, and it was published in 2017. And he really digs in to try to paint the, paint the imperfection of the perspectives that pervaded the 19th century and say, why should we continue to base modern understandings of the cell or of creation or, and he doesn't get into creation, but we understand the, the perspective differentiation. Um, why should we continue to base modern research on these other theories that did not have the whole picture when we have so much more? That's the first one, Replacing Darwin by Nathaniel Jensen. And then the second one is Darwin's House of Cards, which is by Tom Bethel. He is uh, a journalist, I believe went to Oxford, and absolutely fantastic tour de force through the who's who in the evolutionistic viewpoint. He's doing it from 
um, not religiously, but an agnostic point of view. It's a very balanced look at these men and their research, what they've contributed, where they have actually doubted themselves, and talks a lot about uh, Karl Popper and the some of the people that have come out of this having been completely entrenched, completely signed on, and through their own research began to have doubts. So a really, really excellent read as well. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll throw in his, a couple as well. Um, you know, Joe, you mentioned uh, Stephen Meyer, and he has a, a newer book um, called The Return of the God Hypothesis. And in that, he not only talks about the uh, the intricacy of the cells and so on and so forth, but he he does hit upon, uh, in in some ways, some of the these arguments that that we've that we've talked about. Um, and I would agree with with you as well, Joe. You know, the Discovery um, Institute has many great books, but my my second book I would I would um, uh, encourage our listeners to to uh, read is called A Meaningful World. It's by Benjamin Weicker and Jonathan Witt. And in this, they they look at beauty and the sciences and how all of this um, shows meaning um, in in the world. Um, it's it's a tremendous book, and they deal with a lot of the arguments that are positioned by um, atheism and such. So so hopefully that will help our listeners. Joe, Luke, as normal. What an enriching and beneficial um, podcast. I thank you both for joining me. Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you, Luke, too, as well. Blessings to you. Thank you both. God bless. And for all of our listeners, continue to proclaim the gospel, equip the saints, and defend the faith. And join us next time as we ask the question, what about evolution? Thank you.